Okay, guys, we're going to be looking at Joel. We're in Lesson 9 today. We're going to call it Repentance and the Divine Response, okay? Repentance, the call to repentance here, and the divine response from the Lord to Israel. So this is all through the prophet Joel. Now, I want to remind you, we don't know exactly when Joel was a prophet, okay? He could have been a pre-exilic prophet. That means a prophet before the exile, either to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom of Judah. Or he could have been a prophet to Judah after the exile, those who returned from the exile back to Israel. We don't know exactly where, but it really doesn't matter where because what he is sharing with us has implications no matter what time period we're in, especially if you remember We're talking about the nation Israel here. We're not talking about the U.S. We're not talking about anything, but the principles that we can learn from here are for God's people. And who are God's people today, folks? The church, right? Okay. Of course, whatever is being said about Israel is for Israel, which will be fulfilled ultimately in the end. So we're going to look at um, Chapter 2, starting with verse 12, working our way through chapter 3, verse 21. So let's take a look at verse 12 through 17. That's our first section, and it has to do with the call to repentance. And uh, here is what the prophet writes that the Lord told him to. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all of your heart with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering from the Lord God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes, let the bridegroom come out of his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should should they say among the people, where is your God? All right, so let's take a look here. We're going to look at it in a couple of aspects here. First of all, we're going to see that he's telling them to turn back. So turn back. So first thing I want you to notice is that the Lord personally calls them to turn back to him with all of their heart, okay? All of their heart. So he wants a wholehearted, sincere return from them. He's personally calling them, okay? So this isn't just a prophet saying, hey, turn back. The prophet says God himself is saying, turn back, okay? And I want you to turn back with your heart, in the sincerity of your heart. All right, now, is there a difference between the prophet saying turn back and the Lord himself saying turn back? Do you think there's a difference there? What if, what if Joel just said, turn back, 
Okay? But, but Joel says, the Lord says, turn back with your whole heart. Is there a difference in saying that? You think? Okay, what is it? What would the difference be? Okay, it matters what the Lord says. Okay, that's good, Nancy. Anybody else? What do you think? Okay, might, they might want to listen to the Lord versus listening to you. Okay, go ahead. Lori? Okay, there's more authority because, hey, it's coming right from God versus through, a, through somebody. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think a good illustration of that would be like, I'm thinking about my kids and telling one of my kids to go tell the other kid, take the garbage out, versus me telling them to take the garbage out. Do you know what I'm saying? There's, there's a little bit of a difference there. You know what I'm saying? Because if, if you're a kid and your brother comes and says, mom says take the garbage out, what, what's the tendency there? Not to listen, right? Yeah, forget that. I'm not doing that. You know what I'm saying? Until mom comes out, take the garbage out. You know what I'm saying? Then there's a little bit more of authority there. But there's something else here we're missing, maybe. What do you think it is? Okay, all right. That's good, Tim. From the Lord, you mean? Okay, so you're seeing a personal touch there. That's what I'm, look, I'm, wanting to, I'm wanting you to see there. This is God himself saying, come back to me. Come back to me with your whole heart. Come back to me sincerely. So there's more of a personal touch than just talking through someone, okay? So there is a personal touch aspect here. If I just sent somebody, you know what I'm saying? So let's say I'm dating Lori. Back 30-some years ago, I'm dating 30 years ago. Yeah, we've been married 30 years. So it had to be 32, okay. So let's say 32, and I'm sending somebody else to bring her messages. Really? What if I myself brought the message? Is that more of a personal touch than sending somebody else to bring the message if you're wanting to connect there? Do you see what I'm saying? So, all right. They were to express outwardly the... The breaking of their hearts. So they were to express outwardly, weeping. They were to express their feelings with the breaking of their hearts. Now it's interesting though, because the, up to a certain point, if you look with me at verse 13, he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Okay. Before that, he says, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, but rend your hearts, not your garments. Why would he say that? He wants them to outwardly express their, their grief, their desire for him, the breaking of their hearts, but he's not so much interested in them ripping their clothes. He's interested in them ripping their hearts. So he wants them to express outwardly through emotion, but not through which would be typical in their generation, what? The ripping of their clothes. What do you mean the typical? Well, remember when Jesus was before the high priest? Are you the son of God? You say that I am, and just the pronouncing I am is a title of God, so what is it? It says the high priest ripped his clothes. 
You'll see that throughout the Old Testament that they would rip their clothes as a sign of contrition. He's saying, I'm not interested in you just ripping your clothes. I'm interested in you rending your heart. Is there a difference? Okay. Now, how is, all right, so let's, because it's interesting, because he wants us to express outwardly our, the rending of our hearts, the breaking of our hearts. But he doesn't want us to express it through ripping our clothes. He wants us to weep. He wants us to fast. He wants us to, to do those kind of things. What's the difference? Is there a difference? Think about it. Is there a difference between just ripping your clothes and bawling your eyes out? Okay, that's good. One's a show. Anybody can rip their clothes, right? Anyone can act like they're grieving. But the emotions that come from where? The heart, right? Yeah, from your heart. Yes. And in the Jew in Jewish mindset, the heart was the essence of who you were from the inside, not just the muscle in your chest. It was the essence of who you are. So who you are is expressing grief through the weeping, through the fasting, and he says, it's not just ripping of your clothes to act like you're contrite, okay? Because anybody can do that, right? So here's what he describes the Lord as. And so I think this is something that we sometimes tend to forget. So let me read you what the scripture says, okay? Look with me at verse 13. For he is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Okay, so the point is here, the Lord is described as gracious and merciful. Okay, he's described as gracious and merciful. Here's what else. The Lord is slow to anger, and his character is one of great kindness. Okay, He's described as one of great kindness. And the other aspect of it is the Lord is described as relenting from doing harm. Now, does anybody know what that means? What does it mean to relent from doing harm? What do you think that means? Okay, he doesn't want to hurt you. Okay, that's good, Gene. Anybody else? Anybody else got a thought? His gun doesn't have a hair trigger. Did you know what I'm saying? He's not just ready to drop the hammer on you. But isn't that what we think sometimes? When you listen to how he's being described here, okay, so first of all, he's, he's talking to a group of people. He wants them to come back to him. Have they been doing right? Now, we already know that from the other prophet that we've studied. Hasn't been any different through all of their generations. They're doing some terrible things, right? They're even killing their own children and sacrifice to these other idols and so forth. So God says, come back to me. Come back to me sincerely from your heart. And, and here's who I am. Here, I am gracious. I'm merciful. I'm slow to anger. Anybody know what that means? Yeah, we, I think we do, right? He's not, 
quick with the temper. And he relents from doing harm. Now, how is that different than the way that we normally think? How do we normally think when, when somebody does wrong? How, what kind of a picture do we have of God? Okay, so okay, so woodshed God. You kind of threw me off there a minute there, bro, like that's some kind of a God. You're, you mean the God who takes you to the woodshed. Okay, yes. Okay, I'm not the woodshed God. Okay, so. Because I know like the, the Hebrews, when they were in the wilderness, some of them were worshiping the goat gods. It's not like the goat gods. It's the God who takes you to the woodshed. Okay. All right, so. Oh, you were, and say that again, we were raised that way to think that God drops the hammer. Okay, yes, and that's how we were raised. That's how we're conditioned. And that's how humanity operates, right? We're a system of laws. You break the law, what happens? Yeah, you should get punished, right? That's the way our society is set up and everything. That's how most families are set up, right? If you don't, you have chaos, right? So that's what we think. Okay, so therefore we transfer that thinking over into our thinking about God, right? That God, when we do wrong, and do we do wrong? Yeah, let's not pretend. We do wrong, okay? When we do wrong, we think God's ready to... He's just looking. What, what's he doing today so I can take care of him? You know what I'm saying? No, he's, he's not... He's, He's slow to anger. He does not, he relents from doing evil. I think it's interesting. One of the other major prophets talks about that the Lord takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. Man, you need to remember that. Yes, a lot of people are going to hell, but God is not in glee over it. He's not happy about that. He takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. He is, that's not his character. We see his character here. He is, he's wanting to relent from doing harm, okay? He's gracious. And I think that's something we've got to remind ourselves because here's the tendency we have, and I think this is interesting that the prophet does this. We know that there are times when we need to turn back to God, but we're afraid to turn back to him. Why? You, what did you say, John? Fear of the punishment? What did you say, Nancy? Okay, same thing. Okay, echo chamber from this clan. Okay. All right, so we're afraid to go to him because we feel like he's going to drop the hammer. Yeah, he's going to forgive me, but he's going to take a pound of flesh if he forgives me. We think that way, right? Because that's the way it is in our culture. That's the way it is in our families. That's the way it is at work. You know what I'm saying? And we think God acts that way. But here the prophet is saying, God is saying, turn back to me. And as he's telling you to turn back, he said, I'm not interested in just outward show. I want you to be really torn in your heart and come back to me. And by the way, I'm gracious and merciful. I'm slow to anger. I'm willing to relent. Do you know what I'm saying? He's willing to relent. He, he sets in course a motion of whatever he's got to do, but he's willing to pull back. 
He's willing to pull back. And that's who God is. It's, and that's what we see here with, with the call to repentance. So then here's what they do in verses 15 through 17. He, he wants the priests to do something. The priests who were supposed to lead them in the worship of the Lord. He, the priests are told to consecrate a fast and call a sacred assembly. So all of, he's wanting all his people, which is Israel, to come together for a fast. As a people, but gather together for a sacred assembly to meet with God. And all of the people from babies to elders are to gather for this assembly. He wants everybody of the, of the Jewish people to be involved in this. And I think it's interesting, from nursing mothers, you know, all of, and he even gets right down to bride and groom. Bride and groom, like, leave your chamber. I know you just got married, but that, forget that, that's not important. Come to the sacred assembly, meet with God, okay? Meet with God. So the priests were to weep and intercede before the Lord concerning sparing Israel. They were to intercede. They were to weep before the Lord, and they were to see that he would come back and bless them again. So let's look at the rest of the chapter. Let's look at verses 18 to 27, because we're going to get into divine response. So the rest of chapter 12 through chapter 3 is the divine response. First thing we're going to see here is the issue of forgiveness and restoration. We see that in verse 18 through 27. Here's what the prophet writes. The Lord will be zealous for his land and pity the people. He will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil. You will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove from you the northern army and will drive him away into the barren and desolate land with his face towards the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. His stench will come up and his foul odor will arise because he has done monstrous things. Now, that's an interesting, we'll talk about this. What in the world is he talking about here? We'll talk about it here in a moment, okay? Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree and the vine yield its strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. And he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors will be full of wheat. And the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts. My great army will, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. 
and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and young men shall see visions. And also on my manservants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. Before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. All right, so let's take a look here. We're going to see the divine response. First of all, here it is. In their cries, the Lord will be zealous for the land and pity the people. So he's going to be zealous for the nation, okay, for the land that he had promised them. He's going to pity the people. Why would he pity the people? Well, they just went through, remember, first part of Joel, they just went through a, an invading army, whether it was literal locusts that ate everything up and destroyed the land, or whether it was an invading army, okay? He's going to be uh, having pity on his people because of what they've gone through. The Lord will bless them agriculturally and no longer make them a reproach to others. The Lord will bless them agriculturally and make them a reproach to others. Now, I think we understand that, right? Because even to this day, okay, so if you think about the world, forget about America for a second, but if you think of other nations around the world, there are other nations that we would say, well, they got some problems. I wouldn't want to live there. They live in poverty or, you know what I'm saying? They've got, they're facing one calamity after another. And so they develop a reputation in the world community as what the Bible would describe as a reproach. Did you understand? They would be seen as less than. I think we all understand that. It's no different today than it was then. 3,000 years ago. And Israel, because of its devastation from whatever this army was that came, they became a reproach to the nations around them. Like, okay, where's your God? You guys aren't doing well. You're just poor. You're suffering. So the Lord will drive their enemies far from them, and the stench of their bodies will fill the air. That's what the whole issue is of the stench there in the passage. He's saying, I'm going to drive the army away towards the east and towards the west sea. What, what, what's that? But towards the north. And the air will be filled with a stench. What stench? Rotting flesh. Because the army will be destroyed by who? Who will the army be destroyed by? God, right? Okay. God. The Lord calls the land not to fear because he will restore what the locusts have eaten. He will restore what the locusts have eaten. Now, <clears throat> Joel chapter 2, verse 25, every once in a while, you will hear somebody claim that verse. Here's what the verse says. 
So I will restore to you, it's a promise. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. How would that be a promise to people? Anybody? How would that be a promise? Okay, that's good, Tim. All right, anybody want to add to that? He's going to give them back the years. A lot of times I'll hear Christians use this verse, they'll claim this verse as a promise. Want me to help you? Okay, Tim's Tim's close to it. Here's what it is. Typically what happens is, is that do believers leave perfect lives? Is there a chance that believers backslide? Yeah, yeah, okay. With that backsliding is their punishment. Remember, he's, he's not the woodshed God, but he's the God who takes you to the woodshed, right? Okay? And, uh, and so a lot of times there are Christians who will, who will give testimony to having turned away from the Lord in their walk, and their lives were a mess then, but now they claim the promise, they come back to God, and they believe that God will give them back what? The years that the locusts have eaten. They described that time of turning away from the Lord and the punishment they faced as the time that the locusts had eaten. So they, they, they asked God, God, give me back the years. I'm, I'm with you now, Lord. Give me back the years. Give me back the blessing of that time. Did you understand now what it's saying? Yeah. So this is quite a promise, isn't it? Now, some of you are like, oh, I'm not sure. What's that? No, he's not promising that, but people pray that, though, because they are wanting him to take them in their brokenness and make them something again. And there's a promise of that. Now, for every person, it'll be different. But the point is, I'm my heart's back with you, Lord. I messed up. I repent. I, I'm weeping. I'm broken. And, I, and we physically, can we do anything to get those years back? No, we can't do anything. But who can give us? Not that you literally add, okay, that was seven years. I'm going to give you seven more years to live for me. No, that's not that point. But that it's a place of restoration. What he's talking about here, it's, it's a promise of restoration. And so when Christians use this verse, they're, they're asking God to restore them. Do you understand? Restore them. Does that help you understand, John? And I think he does restore us, but not necessarily what we might think. Yeah, I think a lot of people are asking for seven Well, they might be, yes. Yeah. I think a Yes. However, I think we need to look at it from another way. Not that he gives me back the literal seven years or the blessings of those seven years that I missed out on, but that he restores me back to the relationship.
okay? He restores me back to the relationship because when I'm in the relationship, I will be better off than when I was away from you. Do you understand? Okay? And sometimes I think this is a good promise for people because I've met numerous believers because of their mess-ups, because of their whatever and doing the wrong thing. They feel that they are less than believers. They come to church. They maybe give. But they don't feel that God can use them again. They don't feel that there's any hope for them again because they carry a mark. Now, why do they feel that way? Because that's our culture. You mess up in our culture, and especially in a small town, do you carry that forever? Yeah, somebody's going to remember it, right? But with the Lord, there's restoration and he doesn't remember it, does he? No, no, it, he doesn't. And we're going to see that some more here in a minute as we get through this passage. Yeah, I've got to get moving if we're going to get through this because we've got to start Amos next week, okay? So the Lord affirms that his people will never be shamed again and will know that he is God. Shamed. They're not going to be shamed again. The Lord will pour out his spirit on all people. We've seen that fulfillment already. Anybody know when? Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit came upon who? The church, right? This will be followed by the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's what we're waiting for is the next thing that Joel prophesied. He prophesied about the Spirit coming upon all people, and we believe that, right? Because if you trust in him, who enters into your life at that moment? The Spirit of God. The next event that Joel is prophesying here is, is that there will be the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's his what, folks? Coming, all right? So the day of the Lord will be preceded by threatening signs in the heavens, so right before that, there'll be threatening signs in heavens. In fact, we know that. Revelation. If you read the latter chapters, the final series of judgments, it talks about the skies changing, shifting, the sun becoming dark and the blood becoming like blood, moon becoming like blood, excuse me. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. So again, the even in the midst of that, those who call on his name will be saved. And the Lord, here's the promise now, the Lord will bring back the exiles from Israel and Judah. The exiles, he'll bring them back. That's his promise. So he's promising to the nation Israel, I'm going to bring you back from all over the world. And they are literally all over the world, folks. And the Lord will gather all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat for judgment. Now, here's the interesting thing. We don't know where the valley of Jehoshaphat is. You can look that up in any Bible, Matt. You're not, you're not going to find it. Okay? But obviously, the, what gathers in the end, in the valley of Megiddo, we call it Armageddon, all of the nations there gather to fight against who? The king, when he comes. And is it a real big battle? No, not at all. Do you know what I'm saying? 
And there'll be judgment. So the nations will be gathered in the valley of Jehoshaphat for judgment. The Lord will judge the nations for their treatment of who? Israel. All of the nations, every single one of them will be judged for their treatment of Israel. And the Lord will require that they repay Israel for their offenses against God's people. So the prophet is making it clear that everybody's going to be paying them back. And the Lord will grant, Israel will be granted superiority over the nations. They'll rule over the nations. Now, here's the interesting things. Where are we in that? New Testament gives us several different promises. What will our role be in that? Anybody know? No, that's, that's a good thought there, though, but that's not, that's not what I'm getting at, Tim. You want to know what it is? You're going to rule with him as he rules with an iron scepter, a rod of iron. You and I will rule with him over the nations. Isn't that interesting? Yes, believers, yes. Believers will rule with him. That includes who? You guys. Okay? You guys. So Israel will know that the Lord is their God and that he dwells with them. They'll know this, that God is their God and he, he dwells with them. All right? He dwells with them. So Jerusalem will be holy and no foreigner will ever pass through her again. It's interesting. If you go over to Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes down, the, the, uh, the writer, when he writes the vision, John, when he writes the vision, says that there will be no evildoer or anything in the present. It's basically saying it'll be so holy, God's people will be there, will be no more sin or sinful people there. No introduction of sin. It will be pure. And that's the point he's making here is that Jerusalem will be holy and there will be no foreigners. Because right now, for several thousand years, who, who has Jerusalem belonged to? Foreigners of many different nationalities. You know what I'm saying? If you think through history, everybody has wanted Jerusalem. Do they still want it? Yeah, yeah, okay. Do they still want it? Okay, so the land will be productive and Israel's ancient enemies will be desolate. What do you mean ancient enemies? Well, he mentions two here. Edom. Anybody know who Edom is? Edom was the offspring of a fellow by the name of Esau. Who was Esau? Jacob's brother. And they have been at war with each other ever since, right? Edom is an ancient enemy. The other ancient enemy is Egypt. Remember, they're the ones who held Israel, what? Captive for 400 and some years. Okay? So they will be desolate, the prophet says here. So Judah and Jerusalem will bide forever because the Lord has acquitted them of their sin. They'll abide forever 
because God has acquitted them. And I think that's interesting that the passage uses that term, acquitted. Verse 21, I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted. Why use that word? Why didn't he just use the word forgive? Why use the word acquit? Anybody? Because he could have just said, I will forgive them of their sin, right? But no, no, he doesn't use that word. He uses acquit. Now, what kind of a term is that? Do we use that kind of term in our everyday language? It's a lawyer term. It's a judicial term. So what do, you think the, what, do, what do you think the prophet, the Lord is trying to say through the prophet here? He's saying to them, I will acquit them. Anybody? All right, well, let me give you an example. Okay, so, all right, let's say I get arrested. All right? Think whatever crime. I get arrested, I appear before the judge here in Clearfield County, and they go through the whole process. They got a jury, and I've got my lawyer and the prosecutor, and they're presenting evidence and so forth. They go through the whole process. The jury goes away and delivers. Comes back with a decree of not guilty. And so, therefore, they would say that I have been, what? Acquitted. Now, what does that mean? That's like it never happened. I'm free from the responsibility, right? Because in our system, can you be tried again for that? No, there's, there can't be double jeopardy, right? God's using the same term to say to them, I'm removing your sin, the sin of bloodshed. What bloodshed? Well, we've already talked about it. They had been sacrificing who? To idols. Their kids. They had been killing people. Do you understand? So the reality is God is saying, I'm not just forgiving you, I'm removing it. Isn't that awesome? Is that not awesome? And that, my friends, is how he closes out this book. Okay? So next week, we're going to start looking at Amos. Amos.